Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. So my sister picked on me like crazy. We have four kids, my brother Drew, my sister Anne, my sister Jennifer, and those two sisters were driving my brother crazy, and for a year he prayed for a baby brother. And when I came along, his prayer was answered, and all that annoyance coming down up to him shifted down towards me. In fact, Jennifer was the champion assassin, I would call her later. She looked at me in the bassinet, I think, and she must have said, for me to live, that baby has to die. And by the age of five, just one year later, she had already perfected her skill. And she picked on me all the time. And there was one way I could get back at her. And that was through her cat, Molly. I started to hate cats because I was really angry at my sister for picking on her, picking on me. Well, Molly, I remember one time I got Molly, I put her in a box. I put her in a storage room full of boxes and put some books on it and then shut the door. I loved it. Jennifer came by, she was hearing this cry for help, this meow that was like, I'm off. And Jennifer was like, where's Molly? Where's Molly? And she'd open this closet door with all these boxes. She's like, Molly's in here. And she spent like 30 minutes looking for Molly, finally found her. And she's like, John! And I'm like, yes. This is the way this went. We had an old house. Uh, it had 12-foot ceilings. It had, in the living room, bookshelves all the way to 12 feet high. And I remember taking Molly in one hand and climbing the bookshelves uh, all the way with, like a ladder and putting Molly on the top shelf. And, uh, and then climbing down, going around the corner and just waiting. And sure enough, Molly started to cry. My sister Jennifer would just frantically walk around and like, where's Molly? I hear her. Where is she? And then she would look up and then she'd just fall apart into tears. I'd love it. Uh, the worst one and I'm just going to say it I'm just coming out confession right here this just proves that I'm not the lead pastor nor should I be a lead pastor here my mom would say John could you take Molly and put her outside I'd say yes I'd take her and I'd go outside and I'd drop kick the cat out let me tell you something I did not feel bad the world seemed like right with the world when I did this Like, this retaliation was the only thing I could do. I hated cats. I hated Molly. I hated Jennifer. Funny thing is, of course, later on I realized, I think you could actually get in trouble for these things. And and I started recognizing as I was getting old, man, I was really mad. Uh, She had a cat as an adult. I lived over here in this part of the country. She lived in Texas. And her cat's name was Pumpkin. P-N-K-I-N. It's an orange cat. And uh, I hated that cat. I didn't even live with her. I was halfway across the country. And here I am, like, in my 30s, hating her cat. And I'm like, maybe I have a problem. The funny thing is, though, with these two cats that you saw, Molly looked just like the dark one. 
kids in our neighborhood, when we just brought these cats, they wanted to name them Molly and Pumpkin. And like, not just Pumpkin, with an N, P-U-N-K-I-N, the same thing. And my sister's like, ha, see, God's getting you back. God's coming after you. And I was like, wow. And I realized, of course, there are some things you can't get rid of, like cats. And you can't get rid of your sister. And you can't get rid of your anger sometimes. For me, in all seriousness, uh, I could point to uh, my sister and the trauma that she charged uh, caused on me as a little brother. And there was a little bit of that. I certainly caused plenty of that back. Um, but the longer I've gone with life, the more I've continued to hang on to anger. And the longer I've held on to anger, the more I've realized it wasn't so much Jennifer that caused this anger in me as much as it found my sin found an opportunity in expressing itself in that anger. And today we're going to talk about our dark side. And uh, my dark side does have to do with anger. It expresses itself that way. And today we're going to talk about your dark side too. And yours could be expressed probably very different. Maybe jealousy or cynicism or perfectionism or greed or deceit. Um, today we're going to talk about our dark side because uh, this is the thing, as hard as we can try to master it, so many times, even later in life, it, we can feel like it masters us. And though I've worked through cats, and I'm like, Lindsay's and the boys are actually watching, going to another church, uh, watching a friend of theirs be baptized this morning, but um, I'm starting to like our cats, and I don't know what to do with it. Um, but I want to talk to you today about your dark side of mine. Okay, open up your apps or your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We've been doing a series in Romans, uh, and Jeff has kind of laid out the sections of Romans. So far, the first two major sections here of Romans chapters 1 through 5 in Romans, it explains what God has accomplished for us in the gospel. Now we're in Romans 7, so we're moving to the second section. Chapter 6 through 8 explains what God will accomplish in us through the gospel, and that has everything to do with our dark side. So far in this section, uh, in chapter 6, we learn we're no longer slaves to sin. If you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and rose from the grave, you're no longer a slave. You no longer have to sin. Uh, and our relationship has changed. We were married, using the illustration of marriage in the first part of 7, we were married to the law, but now we're married to Christ when you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. So your relationship changed uh, and today we're going to pick up with this. Okay, now that we're kind of looking at the way we were, where we were enslaved to the law, to uh, the Ten Commandments, if you will, and now we are looking at, uh, now that we're not necessarily enslaved to it, but we still have law, and more importantly, we have a relationship with Jesus, how do we handle that with our dark side? So in honor of God and His Word, would you please stand me as I read key parts of today's passage. At the reading, I, in the end, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. So let me read some key parts. Romans 7, starting verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law, and that is good. Sorry, 16. If, now, if I do... 
What I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is, is what I keep doing. A wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. I was full disclosure about my dark side. And y'all are like, gosh, that's kind of dark. Okay. I'm just trying to level playing field. We're going to talk about your dark side too. Okay. And then we're going to talk about, more importantly, how you handle it. How do you handle your dark side? And then third, we're going to talk about turning on the light, okay? So in your dark side, uh, you could, we're talking about the flesh, okay? This is the sinful nature in us that craves to be our own Lord and Savior, our own deliverer. That's what the flesh is uh, here is described. There are three sources of sin in the Bible. The world, as in worldly systems, structures, uh, influences, worldly kingdoms that woo us to believe certain things that aren't true. That's on the outside. Uh, devil is another thing scripture teaches that is the accuser that tempts us. That's coming from the outside, but there's something coming from the inside. It is this flesh. It's this sinful nature. Last week, uh, Jeff unpacked the first six, verse, uh, six verses of chapter seven, as I said, and he said we had a relationship change from this relationship to the law to the relationship to Christ. And the illustration was a marriage. We were married to the law, and in this first marriage, it ended in divorce. But the problem was, it wasn't that the law was at fault, it's that we couldn't get it right. I was not Mr. Right. Um, ladies, you were not Mrs. Right. You, you, it really was, when it broke up, you really could say, uh, it's me, it's not you. You really could. Uh, because the law wasn't the problem, we were the problem. And continuing with that train of thought, Paul repeats that the law is the problem with our relationship, and he shows why we were the problem, and he uses a particular illustration of coveting, okay? Um, verse 7, what shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, that first relationship, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, we still use the word covet a little bit, but we totally know what this means. Thou shalt not covet is the tenth of the Ten Commandments. And covet means to desire more or uh, to be greedy, right? Uh, and it's like when you look at your big, fancy neighbor's house and you want to keep up with the Joneses. And so you do things to your house to do that. Or you try to get the biggest and fanciest house in the neighborhood. But the problem with that is it's a temporary satisfaction. And after a while, you're like, I want to move to that neighborhood because there are bigger and fancier houses in that neighborhood. And coveting keeps going on and on and on. It certainly happens sexually. When you look at the sexy woman and you're like, I want her. But then if you get that sexy woman, you want more of her or you want... Another sexy woman, and that coveting that more and more and more uh, is really what gets you into trouble there. 
at work, we can want more authority or influence. And so what do we do? Yes, we work hard, but we also uh, push down, we uh, kiss up, we do whatever we can to try to get that power, but as soon as we become the boss, guess what? We want more power. So it's this coveting, it's this inordinate desire to want something more. And Paul's saying, that's the one that got me. You know, theft, stealing, Paul probably did pretty well there. Those are kind of easy to track, but coveting is this one from the inside of wanting more and more that really took him out. Colossians 3, 5 says it's idolatry. It is finding satisfaction in something other than God, right? Because that satisfaction is only temporary, though. That God that you thought was going to be great, once you get it, it's just okay, becomes normal. And then you're looking at shifts again and again. Paul thinks about this history of coveting, and he keeps going on when he says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, like it took off. Just when you expect sin would be found out, no, it just took off. It went wild. From apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when this commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. It was, again, it was me producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You know, I wish my dark side and your dark side, once it was seen in the light, it would just vanish. But it doesn't. It seizes the opportunity. And it's like it becomes insatiable. You start realizing, I want more of this. Right? And so the law doesn't remove your dark side, your shadow. Um, and it brings out, actually, these things like anger with me or guilt or shame. It brings out all kinds of emotions, and then we just think, I gotta, we got to fix it. Uh, we got to fix it. we got to get out of this. we got to quit groping alone in the dark. But the law feels us stuck, sometimes struggling between, actually, two sides of us. This is what actually happens quite a bit, and Paul starts to talk about. There's this good side of you that you tend to be loving, that you intend to be kind, that you intend to be good, but then there's this covetous side that starts taking it out. So instead of loving our neighbor who has that bigger and fancier house, we start belittling them because of our coveting. It starts to compete. There's good and the bad side. Instead of loving our wife, we start comparing her to the more pretty woman. And instead of kissing up and pushing down, our coworkers, we start realizing, wait, I was actually called to build up this team when I'm actually unraveling it because of this good and this bad side in me, of this holy side that desires to be righteous and this fleshly side that's trying to be my own Lord and Savior, that's trying uh, to get what I want to be in charge of my life. And too often, this covetousness, and uh, it, just, it just takes out our good intentions. It just takes it out. And then we struggle with relationships. We struggle with our responsibilities. We struggle. And a lot of it is self-inflicted. 
you try to master it, this hardest part, this hardest sin to master, this part of you that desires to be in charge, but in time you just find, man, this, this feels like it just masters me. Paul says it gets worse, just in case you're not feeling down already. Paul says it gets worse. Verse 8, to, 8 through 13, what I just read a minute ago, is all written in the past. The idea is that he was enslaved to the flesh before he was a Christian, before he believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross with sin and rose from the grave. The question is, now that he's in a new relationship with Jesus, what happens? And Paul says, the struggle continues. Verse 14, for we know that the law is sinful, but I am, notice he's speaking in the present tense, of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that's good. So no longer is I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Notice it's kind of wordy. Notice how it's kind of wordy. What he's actually doing is repeating himself. Uh, if you look at the next slide, you'll see here there's some parallels here. Those of you who like creative writing, he's trying to articulate this. So in verse 14, he says, the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. And, and verse 18, there's a parallel here that says, nothing good comes in my flesh. In verse 15, he says, I'm confused because I do what I hate. And in verse 19, he says, I want to do good, but keep on doing evil. And in verse 17, he says, it's no longer I, but the sin dwelling in me. And 20 says pretty much the same thing, it's no longer I, but the sin dwelling in me. What he's saying here is like, this is just a struggle. It's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. My intentions are this, but all I end up doing is this. I, I want to do well, but I just keep finding. I'm not making any progress with the flesh. And so what he's saying here is that even if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and rose from the grave, you are no longer enslaved. You no longer have to sin, but Christians do they still deal with the struggle. They're not fully delivered yet. They're a little bit like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And this flesh, this Mr. Hyde, is this thing that is creeping below and is up to no good. What's interesting to notice here is I think a lot of us think, you know, people are basically good. They just must have some childhood trauma that's getting in the way, or some big cataclysmic event that took off this good nature. But the longer you live, the more I just do not see that. Certainly trauma is very significant and has to be worked through. But even after you work through and you find some healing, you just still find plenty of opportunities. Why? These instances in your past were tough, but they were made all the worse because you were born with something tough. You were born with the dark side that you needed deliverance from. Romans 7, Paul keeps going with this struggle, and at this point, it really resonates me with me. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells in me. So find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He said, you can look at it plainly. I mean, your eyes... They just want, they long for more control or power. Their hands are fighting against good things. There's cynicism in your heart. Your mouth is quick to anger. Your ears are listening to lies. It doesn't take much of self-awareness to see this dark side within. It happens day after day, week after week, year after year. And instead of mastering it too often, you feel like, it masters you. Now, here's the most important question in all of this. How do you handle your dark side? How you handle your dark side shows what you truly believe. It shows what you truly believe. When I come face to face with my dark side, I look in the darkness. I'm like, John, fix it. I just assume it's all up to me to Stumble around the dark and turn on the light. Find it wherever it is, fix it. The way I used to fix it, let's say if somebody said something negative to me about a sermon with a nasty email, the way I used to fix it was in the middle of the night. Okay, we'll put them in their place. You know, well, oh, this and that. Oh, ooh, this will get them. I know this about their sister. Let's throw that in too, right? And then what would happen is I would send it and it would never work. It would never work. They wouldn't fix it. Now, what I do is just sit in the dark at night and thinking anxiously about different strategies of how can I say things or do things or get alliances or whatever it is in order to fix it. And it doesn't work either. Next morning, I'm like, that's stupid. That's called like unloving, John. That's worse than what you're going to do to Molly. Um, what's crazy is we need to answer not just what's our dark side, but how do you handle it? And I want you to just take a second and think at your worst part, at the sin that you're most ashamed of or that you struggle with the most. In those moments when you see the darkness, when you see your shadow, how do you handle it? Take a second and notice that because it shows a reaction that can be really, really helpful in making progress in this fight. How do you handle your dark side? Um, I'd like to use that spot right there to use an example of the way we handle our shadow, okay? So let's say we're casting a shadow. So let me make it a little bigger here, okay? And for the first time, you see your sin, right? You know, law, right and wrong says you're in the wrong. How do you handle that darkness? How do you handle that shadow? Many times, if somebody else is to blame, we think it's her fault. She's the one that put me far away from the light. And we can blame. Or we can point the finger out there. Or we point the finger and then uh, shrivel up and become the victim. And we stay here in the dark. And we're the victim of somebody else's sin that cast us far away from our happiness. A lot of times what happens is it's pretty clear 
you're the one and I'm the one that caused it. So what do we do? A lot of us will start beating up ourselves. We start shadow boxing, right? We start beating ourselves up, thinking that if I shadow box enough, what will actually happen is I'll get rid of that shadow. But it doesn't work, does it? Other times we're so ashamed by it that basically we just want to shrink down and hide in the dark. But that doesn't work either, does it? You see, how we handle our shadow is, uh, is, is showing the problem. Let's, uh, let, let's just kind of keep going here and let's, let's talk about how Paul handles this, all right? How the Bible handles this. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about our son Wesley. Um, when our son Wesley turned two, his little brother came in the house. And he was anxious. For whatever reason, you never fully know what's going on in the mind of a two-year-old. But that child was really anxious. And for two years, he was awake at night. And uh, he would wake me up every couple hours for two years. And uh, at the first 18 months, all I do was my reaction before I was even fully awake was to get angry. Go back to bed. Don't wake us up. Well, obviously, that didn't work. And literally, my wife, a few months in, started saying, I think he's scared, John. I think he's scared. And I'm like, oh, the kid just needs to go back to sleep, right? Of course, you're sleep deprived. You're not at your best moment. Okay, I'm trying to justify myself. It was pretty bad. I was angry, and it was not helping. After, no joke, 18 months, I said, all right, God, I guess you just want me to be up in the middle let's go let's embrace this and so he would come and wake me up i get up with him i pick him up i take him back to his room i rub his back i'd read some children's book i'd pray over him and he'd fall back to sleep for two hours and then he'd wake me up again but you know what i learned in that moment wesley wasn't afraid of the dark he was afraid of being alone in the dark And after six months of realizing he's not alone, that someone will get up and care for him, he started to sleep through the night again. Paul handles his shadow very differently. He realizes in the dark that he's not alone. So let's talk about turning on the light. Verse 24, Paul owns up with his sin. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul cries out for deliverance from the only one that brings the light. Think about it. The law will reveal your shadow, but only the light will remove it. And Jesus himself said, I am the light. Now you need both. You do need the truth. You do need the truth to show that you're off, to see the shadow on the wall. And actually, as horrible as the shadow on the wall is, it actually can be really helpful if you recognize it's showing you how far you are away from the light. Because what actually happens 
when you turn from the shadow and you walk towards the light, if I walked right under that spot and we turned that spot down, after a while my shadow would diminish so much there would be very little shadow at all. What I'm going to tell you today is walk towards the light and watch your shadows flee. You are not alone in the dark. Trying to fix it on your own is not the way to go. You will not master it. But turning from your shadow to the light and walking towards the light will make your shadow diminish. And more importantly, will bring you into the light. Um, God's word, when you become a Christian, has this strange kind of way of starting to become really attractive. Before it was like, gosh, I already feel terrible about myself. Why would I want to read the Bible? Right? But when you, be, when you realize that you're not alone in the dark and you then turn to Jesus because you believe that he really did die on the cross for sin and rose from the grave, there's something about the truth of Scripture that shows you your shadow and yet brings you to the light, brings you gracefully into the place you need to be that you realize it's a delight. And... Paul actually says, we're delighting in God's word now. And let me tell you something. If you open yourself up to really seeing your shadow and then turning to the light, turning to Christ, you start reading verses like Romans 8, 1 very differently in your darkest moments. Here's one of them. Here's, let's just read Romans 8, 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In your darkest moments... Do you really believe that you're not condemned by God? Do you really believe that you have someone in authority in your life that's a voice that's telling you you are not condemned, but you're loved even in the darkest moments? If you do, then you're probably a Christian. If you do not, you are not accepting grace. And you have decided the law, the standard of right and wrong, is in authority over me, not the law of Christ, of grace upon grace upon grace. And you're still trying to be your own Lord and Savior. So practically speaking, what do you do when you're in a dark side? And you're tempted to fix it alone. First of all, the thing you need to do is recognize you're not alone. Confess your sin. Turn from, acknowledge the shadow, turn from your sin, cry to Jesus, and walk towards the light. And when you walk towards the light, you're going to watch your shadow flee. Right? And if God is God, and he really is, he'll do his job, and he really will. He'll turn up the light and enlighten your path. First John 1, 6 through 9 unpacks this further. He, John describes and writes this way. If we say we have fellowship with him, that is God, while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of, his, of Jesus, his son, who cleanses us from all righteousness. Listen, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're just turning our back on our shadow, pretending it's not there. And the truth is no, not in us. But if we confess our sins, yes, I see the shadow. And now I turn towards you. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Walk towards the light and watch your shadow flee. Now, one more great news is this struggle with the flesh, according to the Bible, is temporary. Everyone in this room is struggling with it. But if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, one day that struggle will end. One day, you will have a place where you, Scripture describes in 1 Corinthians 15 about receiving a new body, where you will not, no longer be in the shadows. Your flesh will die and you will be fully redeemed. And um, that struggle will be over. It will happen in the future. And that brings hope for today. The light will change darkness forever. It's a big statement. It's a big belief in the future that we as Christians have with this. But that is what the scripture teaches. And we do believe it. So walk towards the light and watch your shadows flee. Now, I'm not fully delivered from my anger yet. Uh, and in fact, 10 years ago, I really walked around about the same period of time when Wesley wasn't sleeping through the night. There was a bigger issue going on for three years in our family. So, so it was so tough. I don't want to mention it publicly, but I was extremely angry and I walked around just angry for three years. Um, there was an injustice that had been done. Yes, but that offense uh, didn't take me long to go from self-righteous or from righteous anger to self-righteous anger to just unrighteous anger. And for three years, I felt like it ruled me. And three years into it, I remember driving in 2012 uh, in the mountains, and uh, it was early in the morning. It was totally dark because I was on the backside of the mountain. And I was so angry, and I literally remember just clutching my, the, the wheel as I was driving, literally white-knuckled. And as I came over the top of the mountain on the interstate, the morning sun just flooded the car. And all of a sudden it hit me that God doesn't love me any less. And that changed it all. I had to be caught in the darkness believing lies. And for me to see the light shining and flooding in my car to see all the shadows flee, to see it is God as the one that brings the light. It's the God that brings the change. It's God that brings love, that brings grace upon grace upon grace at your darkest moments that helps you realize, I'm not in the dark alone, and he is here to change and help me. You know, what you and how you handle your dark side shows what you really believe. Where you're trying to be your own Lord and Savior and trying to fix it, alone, or thinking you're alone, or whether or not you really have somebody in those moments that you can cry out to and ask to turn on the light. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Today I want to ask you to walk towards the light and watch your shadows flee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you today with things on our mind that are way too fresh. I have a long, way too much history, these darkest parts of us. Is it possible that, that you are in love even in the darkest moments? Is it possible that, that you call us 
to handle our dark side very different ways as coming to you and coming to your light. Yes, I believe it. Father, I'm watching myself change through the years. Not enough, but some to know every time I turn to you and your love, it changes me. Father, I just pray for those in the room that are really dealing with some dark times. I know I say these things, and I don't fully understand the depths that they're dealing with. But Father, I pray you would bring the light to them, that you would show them that they are loved.